we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kean, and I'm coming to you from the Cabin in the Woods located somewhere in County Cork here in the south of Ireland. We always attempt to approach mysteries uh, remaining critical but never cynical. Unfortunately, on this episode, all about the alien big cat phenomena, we also uh, come to you a little sweaty. It is the we're in the midst of a heat wave, which is not something I have to say very often here in Ireland, and things are just things are just starting to break, folks. It's been four or five days in a row now of sort of around twenty five degrees or more, which wow, we're really not really not used to. Really, some of us are really not built for. It. And uh, Sitting outside the front of the cabin with uh, my notebooks and a few other sources that I'm going to be reading from for this episode uh, with a cool, refreshing beer in hand, doing everything I can to sort of cool down just a little bit. The beer for this episode is uh, appropriately enough. It's called the Wild Atlantic Way IPA and it comes from Black's Brewing. Uh, which is over in Kinsale, a town not too far away from here, but I don't want to give the game away as to where the cabin actually is at the moment, so I shall remain a little bit vague as always. <sighs> anyway, the, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Hopefully this this beer will help do the trick. As always, folks, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. I'm excited to talk about alien big cats. It's a um, bit of a strange one for me, uh, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that one uh, very, very shortly. But firstly, um, a small amount of you know back and forth between myself and listeners, some fun stuff that happened this week. Firstly, you can support the show in a very small but also helpful and also no strings attached kind of way over at Buy Me A Coffee, and that is buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and no weird and a huge 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 thanks this week to j and p uh, and emily which kind of rhymes if you want to make it rhyme so huge thanks folks that really made my day that was lovely they sent some coffee my way and uh, you can too if you are feeling thus inspired so what else do we have to talk about? I asked listeners for stories about alien big cats. A few people said to me, Kian, what's an alien big cat? Is that a big cat from another planet? Is it like Thundercats? Is it like Lion-O and Chitara or whatever they're, <laughs> whatever those guys are called? Uh, I said, no, it's not, folks. Alien big cats, or ABCs for short, of course, is what enthusiasts call out-of-place large cats. So sightings of things like panthers, lynx, pumas in countries where ordinarily you wouldn't expect to see them. And amidst the confusion and the questions, I got a couple of cool stories, which I will read out. So I asked for like personal or semi-personal or, you know what, I, I kind of approach this as folklore or as a maybe a semi-sociological phenomena, so I'm happy enough with friend-of-a-friend type stories. So uh, Harlow uh, on Twitter said that uh, they had a story. They said, While hunting deer on the Molesworth Station in South Island of New Zealand, myself and two others saw a large black cat two ridges away silhouetted against the sky. My mate had a good look at it with his scope and was sure it wasn't a feral house cat. I got a quick look with my scope, but then my mate took a shot and missed, and it scarpered. I've seen and shot many feral cats, but this one seemed too heavy set with rounded features. This happened in the autumn of 2018, during the roar, or the deer rotting season. There's been stories of the Canterbury Panther for decades in New Zealand, and it is quite a hotly debated topic amongst the hunting community. So thanks to Harlow for that one. Quite far afield, actually. I'm going to be focusing on this phenomena in uh, the UK and Ireland, which, as far as, uh, depending on how you look at your timelines, is sort of like the home of it or the one of the earliest um, kind of pop culture versions of it that I'd say got the most traction. And I do have some ideas about how these 
how these ideas and how these stories uh, do spread around the world but that will come at the end also who reached out on this topic was lisa from the wonderful beer ladies podcast which you should check out folks because uh, they do an amazing job of talking about history and archaeology and lots of other great things through the medium of beer so if you enjoy when i talk about craft beer and you want to hear people who actually know what they're talking about go there and go and check out beer ladies podcast so lisa says mine is already third hand an archaeologist friend somewhere in the west country in the 90s so i'm assuming this is in the uk i know lisa is based in ireland at the moment but we tend not to call we tend not to say the west country here i presume you mean the uk um, and she says it was the beast of bodmin moor era so it was in the zeitgeist uh, she saw a biggish black cat while working on site but admitted that they may have been hung over or still drunk and then uh, lisa thought of another story and says there was a friend of a friend in the story who had roadied for x70s rockers who definitely had big cats in the area in the area back in the day and the guy associated with this story was 100% straight out of central casting as i recall and it goes without saying that the conversation originally happened in a pub so yet yeah, this this fits into the usual explanation for these stories which is that the animals are escaped exotic pets from somebody nearby and um I would say that having big cats, exotic big cats or other kinds of exotic pets would have been pretty on brand, especially for British rockers in the 70s. So, um, you know, I don't have a hard time uh, believing some of that stuff right there. But yeah, I notice how some of it is is direct encounters that people have had and some of it is friend of a friend type stories. Now, I have a small story myself, which is that not too long ago, I was... Uh, solo camping in a mountain range somewhere in the south of the country and a friend who lived not too far away texted me and said are you up in are you up in that range in that forest um, and I was sitting around the campfire probably having a beer and uh, I said oh yes yeah I'm up here and he said that he was at a nearby family barbecue and was telling people oh yeah Kian is up there uh, doing some stupid ridiculous solo camping uh, it was I was on the fringes of a kind of a, a vast plantation forest which has good and bad things for camping as, as experienced outdoors people know usually not great for ecology but pretty good for camping for certain reasons so he basically all of his family who had grown up in the area immediately said you can't be out there there's a big cat and it turns out that they there they had all heard a story of a, um, a a phantom big cat in the area and it had been doing the rounds for years and occasionally there were newspaper reports about it and um yeah, that that uh, spooked me out a little bit while I was on my own camping. But I was also excited and it kind of got me back into this particular subject, got me reading about it, got me watching a few documentaries and just got me thinking. So by no means am I an expert in this one. Out of all the topics I've covered, I would say it it is one that I was not very much into um, years ago. And I wasn't into it as a kid because this is important on the face of it there's something mundane about it right it uh, i wasn't interested in this as a kid even though you know alien big cat stories showed up in all of my books about the supernatural and the paranormal and i didn't really know why i just you know these are just animals that you know normally are somewhere else but they've gotten here so what what's the big deal on the face of it it's perfectly mundane rational and um and, and nothing weird about it so you know when you're a kid and you're you're reading about ufo abduction cases and mothman and stuff like this the alien big cats seem quite ordinary there's nothing strange about them now as an adult of sorts i find that really interesting that this is a phenomena that on the face of it should be a perfectly pelts and paws thing it should be a flesh and blood thing and there's no reason of uh, you know from first glance anyway to think otherwise and therefore there's no reason why this couldn't happen and i will say that out of all of the stuff that i study all of the unusual uh, beliefs this is one i i am open to taking seriously or at least i'm wondering whether there is a core true phenomena at the core of it and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along so there may i can be i'm open to being convinced here that there is a core of actual physical encounters maybe surrounded by a, a haze of more sociological things and happenings so first and foremost let's just say there is a particular system that we know and understand that may be causing some of these sightings to happen which is that 
there does exist in Europe a trade in illegal pets. Uh, there was in Ireland and the UK up until the 1970s a bit of a bit of a fashion for having big cats in particular. And very very rich people would sometimes collect um, unusual exotic animals and big cats in particular. And the story goes, this is the explanation you will always hear, is that in the 1970s, in 1976, the UK changes its laws. It passes the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Suddenly, you have to... It becomes much more difficult to own an animal like this. You have to have the right kind of enclosure. You have to get uh, licenses. You have to do some training. You have to pay for insurance, blah, blah, blah. So the idea goes, a lot of these rich people who previously were able to own these animals without any hassle... And, and that, that's, that was absolutely true. You can watch videos of people in the 60s, you know, taking their ocelot for a walk or whatnot. Um, suddenly this became, you know, more expensive to do, more hassle. And, this, you know, people figure that a lot of these folks must have released the animal into the wilds. And it seems likely that that probably did happen, at least uh, on occasion. And here's the crux. We know that something like this has definitely happened, at least on occasion because there is a small amount of absolutely no questions asked examples where the, the the myth if you like which is that these animals are living wild in the countryside was proven to happen in individual cases and there are some famous ones that we we might uh, go through that's but before we get there i want to talk about the myth so the myth is that these animals are out there they are breeding right which is like the next step forward we're not just saying that they escape and are at large for a short period of time before they either die or get cap recaptured the myth is that they're out there in the countryside in decent enough numbers you know taking sheep surviving off rabbits and deer and stuff like that and we're going to mention some famous historical cases. So you've got your your super famous cases. And again, the 1960s and 70s, famously a period when the weird becomes big news, especially in England and Britain. Uh, you've got a lot of these these important cases. So famously, you've got your uh, you've got your Beast of Bodmin Moor. You've got your Exmoor Cat. You've got your Beast of Box Hill, which is a fun one for me because I used to live there. And that's in Surrey, and I was I was chuffed to read about some accounts recently of them. I always get a buzz when I read these stories, and I recognize the places because it's somewhere I've been or somewhere I lived. So there was a, a, a spate of sightings back in 2003 and four around the Box Hill area in in nearby villages, places like Shear and Abinger, uh, Abinger, excuse me. And there is a story of what was called the Box Hill Beast from about 2011. And I remember hearing stories about this when I was living there, although the story had morphed over time. I think it was something that originally was associated with the big cat phenomena, but later on the Box Hill Beast was usually reckoned to be some kind of marsupial. And there was an actual breeding population of marsupials in, in, in parts of the UK, not too far away from there. Uh, and the history of those is known because of um, these kind of odd uh, wallaby farms that existed in the area as well and I knew a few people who had had personal sightings of animals that they considered to have been uh, marsupials when I lived there so kind of like a sister case and there, there is such a phenomena as the phantom kangaroo which does exist in some cases and is like an odd sort of a side um, phenomena to the alien big cats or the phantom cats phenomena as well anyway so I'm reaching for in order to talk about some classic cases I'm reaching for my copy of Arthur C. Clarke's Chronicles of the Strange and Mysterious, written by John Fairley and Simon Welfare, with some input from the great man himself. This is from 1987. I actually found this in a basement at work when I lived in Essex, which is the best way to find all of your books. So I'm going to read a little bit about the Exmoor cat in the early 80s. So they write... The tactical situation on Exmoor in the early summer of 1983 seemed to be fully extending Britain's crack military unit, the Royal Marines. Armed with high-powered rifles and the most up-to-date night sights, the men of 42 Commando were holed up in ditches or hunkered down behind walls and hedges. The troops were frustrated. For the second time in two months, they had been fruitlessly engaged. Several of them thought they had seen the target in their night sights, but each time the quarry had been out of range. The operation around Mr. Eric Lay's farm at Drewstone had to go on, for this was the operation to hunt down the dreaded Beast of Exmoor. The beast that screamed in the night, displayed supernatural cunning in eluding its enemy, and was blamed 
for the deaths of nearly 100 sheep and lambs. A marine officer said, The animal moves like soldiers themselves do, from cover to cover, and it rarely crosses open ground. It kills ruthlessly, ripping open its prey, and it can eat 35 pounds of meat. Those marines who had seen something flash across their night sights were convinced that the animal was a large, wild, mongrel dog, some latter-day hound of the Baskervilles. Others were sceptical. Mr. Lay himself said, What kind of dog is it that screams in the night? It is like a nightmare that never ends. The nightmare never has ended yet. The marines have gone back to base, but something is still savaging the sheep and deer of Exmoor and Dartmoor, though less... Uh, there's a word here I'm not sure how to say. Profligate though less profligately than before notice some of the language here like this is my, this is literally my first case that i've pulled out of all of the potential files and we have these weird elements like as if the cat isn't just an escaped cat it it screams and howls at night it's an it's a creature from a nightmare it displays quote supernatural cunning hmm some a little bit odd use of language here which kind of raises a flag for me uh, the Exmoor Beast, I'm quoting again from the book, has some immaculate credentials. Trevor Beer, a local man and a trained naturalist, has seen it five times. Once at close range, he saw it lope along a hedge before clearing it easily. It was dark-coloured, cat-like, and about four and a half feet long. The most distinctive feature was the greenish-yellow eyes. And so the sightings went on. School bus driver John Franks finds himself following a black beast with powerful legs and shoulders down a country lane. Mrs Doreen Locke sees it cross the road in front of her car, three miles from Drewston Farm. Taxi driver Wayne Hyde catches the beast in his headlights on Silcombe Hill. It had a cunning look in its eyes and very powerful shoulders. Another famous case that uh, took the headlines by storm was the so-called Surrey Puma in the early 70s. So, uh, reading again from the same book. As it hangs out amongst some of the most expensive real estate in Britain, the Surrey Puma has naturally had some distinguished witnesses. Morris Gibb of the Bee Gees pop group saw it at his home in Escher in January 1985. He said, We were sitting around watching television when the guard dog suddenly tensed. I let them out and they were halfway across the lawn when they stopped dead and this huge shape sprang across the driveway and disappeared. Mr. Gibb had the large pug marks examined by experts from nearby Chessington Zoo. Their verdict was Puma. The Puma reports have waxed and waned over the years, and the animal's territory has spread over much of commuter belt England. Mostly, they refer to a black, panther-like creature, but Mrs. Arnold, after her face-to-face -face encounter, spent some time looking at big cats in zoos, circuses, or wherever they could be found, and was quite sure her animal couldn't be a Puma. Her best guess was a lynx. Again, as on Exmoor, neither hide nor hair nor convincing photograph has appeared in more than 20 years. Yet 1,000 people have surely seen something outside their normal experience. Something has been making a gory mess of a lot of livestock. Right, so the Surrey Puma, folks, and a few interesting points there. I like how they mention how this is a, a phenomenon with an extremely high rate of personal sightings. And, and witness reports uh, and neither hide nor hair nor convincing photograph and there is a, a photograph here of some kind of slightly ambiguous animal in front of a Surrey house and it says photographs of the Surrey Puma are few and fuzzy wouldn't you know it so I mentioned at the top that this this is absolutely possible there's no there's nothing too absurd going on here on the face of it. There's no reason why we can't believe that some of these animals um, get out occasionally. And the system by which this might happen is known, okay? We know there is this this uh, illegal trade in wild animals. People get busted for it occasionally. It's in the news. It's a matter of fact. So we know that there are people out there keeping these and that maybe they might uh, get out sometimes. And there's a few stone cold cases where that has happened. And we're going to talk about that now. Weirdly... One of the most fated ones is also one of the weirdest, and this is the case of the animal that became known as Felicity in the year 1980. So, Arthur C. Clarke's book says, Evidence does turn up. Ted Noble, a farmer at Cannock near Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands, repeatedly over several months saw his sheep savaged by what looked like a panther or leopard. His neighbour, Jesse Chisholm, had seen the animal only yards away when her hens suddenly started to clamour. 
by the hen run was a black cat, bigger than a Labrador dog with a thick tail longer than its body. Then a visitor to Mr Noble's farm brought in the carcass of a lamb. He said he had seen it dropped by a large cat as it jumped over a deer-proof forestry fence. The head of the lamb had been almost severed and there were deep puncture marks on both sides of the chest. Mr Noble and his sister-in-law saw the animal several times, once even stalking one of his Chetland ponies. Finally, spurred by local derision, he constructed a trap. The bait was a sheep's head hung at the back of a disguised cage. One October morning in 1980, Mr Noble found the trap sprung. Inside was a full-grown female puma. Mr Noble's losses diminished and the puma went to the Highland Wildlife Park at Kincraig, where she lived happily for another four years. Ever since, there has been the strongest suspicion of a hoax. The puma turned out to be well-fed to the point of obesity and positively friendly to humans. Yet, who was hoaxing who, and where did the puma come from? So this is one of the most famous examples of an actual cat that was found, and yet it doesn't really match some of the reports that came beforehand. Some of the, a lot of the reports that there was an animal at large stated that it was a black animal, a sort of a, excuse me, more like a, a panther, and then when it was actually caught, it was a puma. Editing key in here. Uh, while I make something of this point at this uh, moment in the recording, I'm a little bit less sure about it now, having done some more reading. So while there are definitely some reports you can read about the Canuck puma, as it came to be known, which, before the capture of the animal, used the word panther, implying that indeed they did mean it to be a sort of a black uh, cat-like animal. Uh, it has to be said that Ted Noble himself often used the phrase lioness to describe his sightings before the capture, implying that in fact it probably was, at least in his mind, a more of a sandy coloured animal, which would be more in line with a, a puma. And again, a lot of the folks who worked with the animal after it got to the zoo presumably people who should know what they're talking about made the point that the animal was extremely tame was uh, relatively used to people liked having its ears scratched and tickled and was a lot better fed than you would imagine an animal living in the wild actually would be and basically gave all the signs and symptoms of having actually been a an animal that had been kept in captivity so it kind of there's always been this feeling that uh, felicity was kept by somebody nearby and or are purchased by somebody and uh, put into that cage just for reasons of some kind of joke or troll. I suppose we'll never really know for sure. Well, fortunately, we don't only have to rely on the potentially dubious case of Felicity when it comes to, like, actual hard and fast evidence of big cats being loose in the British countryside. There are a number of other famous cases as well. Uh, going back as, as far as 1903... An animal recently sort of pronounced to have been a Canadian lynx was shot in County Devon. I think this was the one that Darren H, a zoologist Darren H, was recently involved with. There has been some work done on this in, in the last few months where I believe this animal was actually kept for years and years and years in a museum basement. It was forgotten about. and It did come with a bunch of paperwork stating that it had been shot in the wild. It had killed two dogs and was shot by a farmer so it does seem to be an example of an animal that actually did spend at least some time living wild in the countryside and uh, killing animals. There's other evidence to say that it had been potentially in captivity at some point before that as well. So again, one of these important things that I'm going to make distinguishing, uh, I'm going to try and distinguish between is whether the animal was properly wild. Was it living at large, you know, uh, with the potential for, you know, creating a breeding population? Or was it an animal that just got out of somebody's care for a short period of time before being recaptured? In 1989 in Shropshire, um, uh, an animal called an Indian jungle cat, which it sounds like I'm being generic, but that is in fact a type of species, was found in uh, Ludlow and it, it, was, it was found dead. So it's kind of difficult to say whether it had been spending any time in the countryside before that. Note how all of these stories start with tales and folklore, like the, oh, you know, sightings and rumors of the animal being out there. And going right back to Felicity, I, I, th I think it's interesting how you've got these stories. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, it's killing my animals. It's a black panther. But then when it's caught, it it's something different or it looks something different. And the way that the animal behaves in in the storytelling, as opposed to how it seems to behave when we get this evidence, is is interesting. Is is That's all I'm going to say about it for now. In 2001, in Goldiers Green in London, 
a Eurasian lynx was captured alive with an unknown origin, but again thought to have been private based on the how well fed it was, how fat it was, how used to people it was. And again, seems like an animal that probably didn't spend very much time uh, out and about before being caught. There's a, a, a famous case of a lynx that was shot in 2003 in Norfolk and was kept in a freezer. And there's some there's some silly stuff about this one whereby uh, I think the I think the police were raiding the home of a gentleman where the where the animal was actually found for other reasons. I think they were they were trying to catch him out for something unrelated. And they said, oh, we see we see you're a game. You're somebody who hunts and you have some freezers. What kind of stuff have you got in there? And he said, oh, uh, I have some pigeons and and the lynx. <laughs> he just told them and they went in and there it was. That story was believed to have been false for many years, but I think more recently somebody uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act with the British police and were able to prove that, at least according to the police officially, it did happen. And uh, that silly story is indeed the way that it did happen. So we know that this stuff does happen occasionally. Big cats are around and they do get out for at least for short periods of time, right? So... That's, that's my first thing, right? This is real, can be real, clearly is real occasionally, at least in a sense. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, here's where, here's where it gets interesting. The phenomena as a wider, take a step back, as a wider phenomena, it behaves very much like other kinds of paranormal encounters. And on face value, at face value, there's no reason for this. This is a perfectly legitimate, ordinary, flesh and blood kind of a thing. Right? And yet, why does it behave like other forms of paranormal encounter? Why do, why do reports and, and witness statements about alien big cats sound similar to those of Bigfoot or UFOs? Why does the same language creep in? Why do the same life-changing events happen? Why do we have a taboo about it? Why do we talk about, why do we talk about this in terms of believers and skeptics? If this is nothing more than a, uh, you know, an animal loose in the countryside. We have plenty of other alien animals out there. No, there are no skeptics of American minks, you know. There, we, we know that they're out there, even though they're, most of us never see one or see evidence of one. There are, the pine marten is a native animal which is um, incredibly elusive. I have friends who study the genetics of the pine marten. I have done for years and have never seen one in the wild. We only know about it through secondary uh, sec secondary evidence that it leaves behind, uh, traps set up to catch hares and DNA tests. We know they're out there. We see them on trail cameras, but you could live your whole life studying them and never see one uh, in the flesh, as it were, in the wild. But we don't talk about believers and skeptics when it comes to pine martens. What's different about the big cats? Again, this is a phenomena which is overwhelmingly witness-driven. 90-something percent of this phenomena exists only as witness stories. Magical, wonderful, um, convincing, respectable witness stories, no doubt, but witness stories nonetheless. All other forms of evidence going for this are kind of similar to the level you get when it comes to Bigfoot or UFOs. We're talking blurry photographs, we're talking prints that are controversial at best, we're talking loads of photographs that look interesting at first um, until you realize that there's nothing really providing, it's allowing you to provide the scale. The, the usual story goes that a photograph comes in and is published by papers saying it looks like a big cat and then somebody says no it's a domestic cat, it's a house cat and then the the reason why the photograph is making the rounds, the reason why it could be interpreted as a as a as a panther or a puma, is because of the lack of scale. Now, I'm not saying that there's no interesting evidence out there. There absolutely is. I wouldn't be here talking about it if I didn't find some of this interesting and maybe potentially true. But my my, my bigger question is why does this have this shroud of paranormality around it? Why does the phenomena shaped the same way as the Bigfoot phenomena. Reports come in flaps. They come all over the country. They, they start and stop, you know, when the way something does when it's in the zeitgeist, as one of my, as one of my um, uh, listeners mentioned earlier on. Uh, the r reports and the flaps happen in numbers or in locations that kind of seem out of proportion to what the actual phenomena must be. Okay, we, we can accept the idea that occasionally one of these animals gets out uh, and as soon as the papers are talking about it, the animal is everywhere. It's sighted everywhere. It seems to be 
in, in more parts of the country than you would imagine. It seems to be uh, cited in one area in maybe more frequent numbers than you would imagine as well. It's a bit like the old the old story where you get an escaped zoo animal and everybody in the city is talking about it and there are reports from everywhere, everybody's seen it and then the paper follows up by saying, well, actually it only got out for about a half an hour and it never left, you know, the suburb where the zoo was. And then everybody else kind of wonders what it was that they were really seeing. So, of course, the, the, the power of the social and... Um, the power of suggestion is huge and and that is generally how i approach this stuff or at least that's the that's the interpretation that i find interesting and 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 why alien big cats is so troubling it's such a strange one for me because it's such a it could absolutely potentially be real and i do find the witness reports compelling and and haunting and um i i believe that the people who are providing them are being sincere and and there are many many reasons for that but, you know, there's this fringe of bizarreness around it. And again, are we talking about a single escaped individual? Because really the myth is that there are breeding populations out there. And I think in order to truly tick this one and say, yes, this phenomena is real, I think we need to be able to show that that is what is happening, not just that there are occasional uh, escapes that are recaptured relatively quickly and interesting how i mean i went searching for examples of animals who were undoubtedly wild in the landscape and feeding and hunting for periods of time and it's not easy to find any uh, unequivocal ones let's just put it that way and again you've got each one is wrapped up in a, a story uh each one is wrapped up in in folklore you know you've got the reports the rumors the witness encounters the sightings before the animal is is caught in each case uh, saying you know it was killing my sheep or it killed my dog uh, and again we find that the the reports don't match with the animal that is uh, sometimes caught and I, I feel like after the animal is caught people kind of may, might secondarily attach their stories and their sightings to it but who knows okay in podcast world the premier source of information about this stuff is of course big cat conversations which is great fun you should absolutely listen to it and um, i've been listening to this a lot as i drive around the countryside at work sometimes for night at night my eyes on the road hoping for <laughs> hoping for a sighting um and it's one of those shows that just has witnesses on and just allows them to tell their story there's no there's no analysis really that's not the point of it um, it's just allowing people to say what they what they've seen and, and that's wonderful. I, I tend to pay attention to language used in stories like this, and I tend to do want to do some sort of analysis on it. That's just the way my brain is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zero in on one story that I heard on that particular podcast, which took place up in the northwest of Ireland. So there is a lesser... I, I see big cat, alien big cat stuff is primarily originally a British thing. Australia and New Zealand have their own slightly distinct versions of it. Ireland has a smaller, less well-known version of it but you know um if you look if you want to look at it as a piece of folklore it is is pretty similar to what the way that it is in the uk so this witness had an encounter up in the northwest of ireland and begins the encounter actually it strikes me as a as a very credible witness a very sincere person she is an ecologist she presumably knows and a person of the country and presumably knows what things look like that you normally see out in the countryside and begins the account that way emphasizes hey i'm a scientist i'm an ecologist this you know flesh and blood encounter nothing weird about it and yet the language used is the language of the mysterious and of the supernatural the word supernatural itself is used by the witness to describe the animal she says that it was supernatural um, they, I, I can't remember now whether it was the witness or the host, uses the words, I think she uses the word sacred. She said this was a sacred moment or a sacred encounter. She mentions that she felt as though she was communing with the animal, like as if we're communicating, we, you know, the animal. And all of these stories, the animal is like seen as this usually a very positive symbol. It's majestic, it's beautiful, it's always utterly at home in the landscape. And it's sometimes, you know, it's, it's usually portrayed as being not scary, or threatening um, nor scared itself it's always very proud and dominant and just kind of moving through the landscape with with utter ease and and mastery over all of its surroundings that's the kind of language that 
the guests always use when they're describing their encounter and communing like the animal stops and looks at you and you see into its eyes and you have a direct connection to some sense of the wild which again this is the kind of language people use when they talk about this stuff the phrase i was in another world is used and and just like with ufo encounters or bigfoot encounters again and, and bigfoot i think is a good comparison because again on the face of it it should be a pelts and paws should be a flesh and blood phenomena and yet inevitably the more you study it the more you realize that it is something else altogether witnesses always have this there's this repeated bit of language they use where they say you know i had my phone with me or my camera but you know i i didn't think to use it i was in another world the, the the encounter was so magical mystical almost religious that something took hold of me and i couldn't do this ordinary thing you know this normal thing the thing you always tell yourself you always tell yourself if i had an encounter with something beyond the normal i would make sure to you know take a photograph or you know if i was hunting because a lot of these stories are about hunters i would shoot the animal and and even in britain you have hunters who see big cats and they on all of the encounters they always say I didn't want to shoot it. That was the last thing on my mind. This was a majestic beast. He he deserves to be here. He is the lord of his domain. I didn't want to kill him or interfere with him. Oh, wow. And, and, and I, this is amazing. And then towards the end of this particular encounter with this woman reporting her sighting in Ireland, she says that she's interested in the spiritual and the shamanic and um, doesn't go into this deeply, but it, it's implied that this meeting with the animal had some kind of spiritual or shamanic significance for her. So we began this encounter saying, I'm an ecologist, I'm a scientist, this is a flesh and blood situation. And we end with this, you know, meeting of, of minds, this meeting with the sublime, with the spiritual and the shamanic. And, you know, the, the podcast doesn't go into that angle. That's not really what it does, but that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I, uh, this language causes my ears to perk up because it's just like the language people use when they talk about Bigfoot and other unusual things. A phrase that guests use constantly on the show is, once you see it, it changes your life forever. So this is not just people talking, I, you know, I saw a slightly unusual animal. This is not people, this is not somebody seeing, you know, an American mink. <laughs> and I know, I know big cats are like just just more interesting and kind of sexier than than mustelids for example but there's something more going on i feel and this is just a feeling it's just a vibe it's not something i can prove listeners know i'm fond of the sociological explanations for things but they're not something i'll ever be able to prove it's just an explanation that feels right to me and i, I usually can't take it any further than that but witnesses often talk about the emotion and the excitement uh, associated with the sighting they talk of how it represents a sense of wildness and their positive feelings from this sense of wildness. Um, and that the animal itself has a, an attitude of confident indifference, that it is some sort of almost spiritually serene animal. And again, all these ideas about the spiritual, about the shamanic. Wow, this is amazing. This is this is like not your Grover Krantz Bigfoot. This is like your your Bigfoot who steps out of a UFO and wants to wants to give you wants to read your aura. You know, it's more like that side of things. Having said all that, most of these witness encounters, I find them fascinating. There's a lot of ordinary people who don't have any mystical element to it, and they're seeing something, and I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know what it is, or I'm not going to tell you that they're hallucinating or hysterical or any of those usual things, because that's not really what I think is going on. They're just, to them, they're just seeing something. And interestingly, there's no inbuilt sort of belief system that goes along with this, right? So if you have a, if you have an out-and-out out religious experience, if you see the Virgin Mary appearing to you, well, that there's a lot of baggage there. That implies a worldview that comes with a set of ideas and rules. And, and maybe that's why you have the encounter, to satisfy that belief. If you see a UFO and you're interested in UFO culture, that comes, it's very loaded, it's very loaded sighting. It's not just a once-off thing and then you get on with your life. It, like we said, it once you see it, it changes your life forever. And an alien big cat on the on the face of it has none of that baggage, right? And it should be a, you know, hey, I saw a strange animal. It's a bit like if you see a fox or a badger, you know, which are rare. Relative, those sightings are comparatively rare, compared, you know, nocturnal. And, you know, I see foxes around even in, in towns and cities and it's always a magical moment. But... 
you know, it doesn't change my life. And yet something about these cats is doing that for people. And I think it's the sense of wildness. And now I'm going to seek into my potential sociological explanation under what I think might be underpinning this. Again, admitting that I don't know what it is people are actually seeing. I think they do believe what they are saying. There's this concept of re-enchanting the landscape. The idea that... So this is really obvious to me because I'm a I'm an ecologist, but most people don't think this way I, consciously, but I think subconsciously they know it. Even if you have no interest in nature or ecology, even if you have only the merest idea as to what's going on in the world in general with the kind of destruction of landscapes and um, mass extinction of animals and all of that sort of thing, even if you're one of these people who walks around the world and says, hey, well... You know, there's still a lot of trees. I still hear a lot of birds singing. What's the problem? The world is fundamentally the same as it was 50 or 100 years ago. I think even those people subconsciously are aware of what we're doing. I think they know what the changes are. And I think they know uh, kind of subliminally what the ecological poverty is that we are in fact descending into. And I think there is a certain kind of guilt that comes with this. Not saying guilt is a good thing or a useful thing, but... You know, I think a, a realistic scientific take on the actual reality of the circumstance is is pretty intense and it cannot but have some sort of emotional reaction. You, you couldn't not be aware of what we're doing on an ecological level and not have some kind of emotional reaction to it. So this this might not even be ecological. Some people feel this way culturally. They think that the world has changed so much. We've lost so much, whether it be, you know... The how cultures used to be more separated and now we have a more homogenous culture whatever we have changed the landscape we have built houses in places where there used to be forests uh, we have destroyed ways of life and homogenized and inter imported a more generic way of life and i think just about everybody as they get older starts to notice this and feel this and so we fall for anything that will allow us to re-enchant the landscape that will bring the mystery back you know, we've sanitized everything. There are no dangerous animals in the landscape most of us will spend our life in, regardless of what country we're in. And, you know, there's very little mystery. Science has taken a lot of the mystery away. And our relationship to the landscape has been separated. You know, we spend all of the time in socks and shoes. We don't touch the earth. We, we're mostly in cars more than we are walking. All of that sort. We're in cities more than we are in the country. And so some part of our brain is upset by this and wants desperately to bring the mystery back to the landscape. And this shows up in different ways. So, you know, what used to be called Earth Mysteries in the 70s is a big part of this. Uh, the ideas behind ley lines, I think, not originally the way they were proposed. It was less kind of, it was less mystical in, in the original um, Alfred Watkins concept of it. But definitely after the 50s and 60s with the New Age stuff, ley lines become a lot more pseudoscientific. People who are obsessed with, you know, stone circles and worshipping at them, I think, is, is an attempt to, you know, connect with the landscape and kind of fill this gap which we have created and, and fill in that void. And I think Bigfoot also is can be a symbol of this uh, in, I often mention this, but in Bigfoot, Life and Times of a Legend by Joshua Bluebuzz, he talks about Bigfoot as a symbol of the green movement, as a symbol of an ecological movement, as a symbol of back to the land. And I, th I think there's a lot of that stuff going on as well. Um, Sharon Hill talks about this concept of extinction guilt. The idea that, you know, the, the, the search for cryptids comes at least partly from the feeling that we have done, we know we've done a lot of damage. We have destroyed most of the great megafauna on the earth since the Pleistocene, probably. And we definitely have done it within recorded history, no questions asked. And so the idea that cryptozoology in general might come from this sense of guilt, the idea that, well, if we, you know, if there are still Tasmanian tigers out there, then we can't, we can't have done that much damage, right? If there are still dinosaurs in Africa, well, you know, then there are still wild places out there that we haven't messed up yet. And it's, it's, it's an attempt to make ourselves feel better about some of the bad stuff that maybe we have done, that maybe we feel guilty about, even if it's subconscious and we don't realize it. Because I think most people are not as aware of the ecological destruction, or at least they don't actively study it or work with it every day. But somewhere at the back of their minds, they know, even the people who are in denial, I think. So, do we have here, I've got to marry these two things together finally. I've got to marry the, the practical fact that there are some cats out there and that they get caught occasionally with 
this wider and sort of more folkloric version of the big cats which for whatever reason to me at least seems to behave like other kinds of supernatural reports do we have here a core physical phenomena that is surrounded by a wider fuzzier more sociological phenomena there are some things that can help us decide this so in 14 times recently there was a wonderful article by Marilee Harper, who is the author of a book called Mystery Big Cats. She has recently updated the book and has an article in 40 and Times. One of the, now, Marilee Harper is definitely of the opinion that big cats are not flesh and blood. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is a common take on, on the phenomena within the, within the world of people who study this. I suspect it isn't. I suspect most people who follow this stuff uh, do see it as a flesh and blood phenomena. Marilee Harper calls herself a heretic several times for thinking that it is something more supernatural. And she say, she points out that a lot of the physical attributes of the animals are weird, just flat out weird, or make no sense when it comes to what you would expect uh, zoologically from this. So she says, they display the anomalous features and elusiveness of creatures which can pass between different worlds. For instance, the big cat that startled Amy Louise was lynx-like in that she describes his ears with black tufts extending as if someone had glued them on. Yet in other respects it was a classic puma, sandy coloured with a long tail, whereas, of course, lynxes are mottled with very short tails. The black panther-like cat John saw, at close quarters from his motorhome, was muscular and lean with a freakishly small head. Yet the one he saw from the M25 had an unusually large head, like a jaguar. Another of Rick's reports from Hertfordshire describes a black panther with spotted back legs while another witness saw a huge black cat with big black pointed ears, not a characteristic of the leopard family, which have round ears. There was certainly something a little otherworldly about this latter cat, sitting on its haunches on a path through a reed bed. It was slender and graceful with gleaming yellow eyes and a purple sheen to its long black hair which the wind was parting. It melted away in a fluid movement like water leaving the witness puzzled. Nothing was quite right. All I can say is that the the potential supernaturalness of these cats is fairly subtle. We don't yet, the, the, the phenomena hasn't yet morphed into the sort of portal Bigfoot or, uh, you know, Bigfoot stepping out of UFOs. It hasn't gone in that direction yet. I wonder if someday it might, but perhaps the fact that this is a primarily, at least the version of it I study, is primarily a UK phenomena means that you have different different sociological factors at play. Uh, as I said, I think most of the people who study this stuff are intensely take a flesh and blood approach to it. So it, it isn't as out there yet as, um, you know, some other supernatural phenomena. To me, the connections are subtle, but they are there. It's in the language people use. It's in the effect that the encounter has on their lives. It's in the fact that they don't, they, the people tend not to take it just as a, oh, there's an animal, didn't know those were in Britain. It Instead, it consumes them and takes over their life. And uh, very often they become you know, obsessives or investigators, or, and they spend the rest of their time and their years chasing this uh, data which continues to elude them. And again, we, we speak about this in terms of uh, believers and skeptics. So th th that those are the ways in which, to me, this has something something in common with more supernatural things. I don't know exactly what. So we've talked about the cats that have inconsistent or odd details. Another important thing that makes me wonder about a sociological basis is the fact that Something like 70% of all sightings are of black, black black panthers. Now, panther is a generic term. It's not, doesn't mean a particular species. It is the term for the, for the dark melanistic variant that you get in populations both of jaguars and of leopards um, and, and various other big cats as well. In the wild, when it comes to leopards, at least... You'd expect, it's, it's a recessive uh, trait, so you wouldn't expect it to show up that often in a natural population, something like 11%. There are some, there are some cases in, in, I think in Malaysia, where you get uh, small populations of entirely, entirely black ones, but there's probably some, we don't know exactly why that is, there's probably some kind of uh, selection pressure going on that we don't understand yet, but predominantly the image in the public is of a black cat, and when you see them Whenever you see an article about this, I'm just looking at my 14 times here on the front cover, it is, of course, a Black Panther. 
and you know that's how they have been typified in culture and such and such that is how they tend to show up in the reports and think back to poor felicity who was a, a sandy colored puma but you know she was captured in response to sightings of a a black panther like animal so again it's not impossible that you might have a population that has developed this trait but genetically it is a little unusual so to return to Merrily Harper and her idea of these as mystical creatures in some way, she has a fairly like a John Keel type attitude of saying that they are just one representation of lots of one representation of a kind of a some mystical being or process which has been with us kind of forever. And I'm just looking for the place in her article. Here it is where she mentions a. Uh, the different forms and formats that these beings may have had over history. She calls them daemons. She says um, there are elements of the ABCs, the alien big cats, which resemble other daemons, ancient and modern. She gives a list. Dryads, fairies, goblins, jinn, the sheha, fawns, the coinish piskies, the wood woes, black shuck, holder folk, UFOs, will-o'-the-wisp, men in black, werewolves, lights in the sky... And one could also add certain forms of Bigfoot and Dogmen to that as well. And I think I will mention as well that, of course, the UK has a long tradition, um, much older than the, the modern black cat phenomena, of black dogs, the black shuck, which she mentions there. So the idea of a mysterious animal, which is black, which um, appears in unexpected places, which leaves no trace, which behaves according to its own rules, which may, be, may or may not be supernatural, there is a precedent to this going back hundreds of years as well. Finally, this is a phenomenon that does happen outside of the UK and Ireland, of course. Uh, Australia has its own special version of this. New Zealand has its own version of it. People tend to say that these phenomena, if they are sociological, you'd expect them to show up in cultures which are similar. So UFO culture is very prominent in the US, also in, in the UK. And certainly, I think those fields have fed off each other especially in the in the early days but you also have a tremendous amount of interest in ufos in and a wealth of sightings in latin america as well so you know there are there are ways in which these things are sociological there are ways in which they probably are not because you've got you've got examples of big cat sightings and big cat sighting flaps and in, in non-anglophone parts of europe as well so there's something more going on i think i I think it's a bit simplistic to say that um there's this only exists as a sociological thing as i said at the top out of all the strange things i've studied this is the one i am really closest to saying there is some physical core to it i will continue to uh, read up on this and research it listeners if you have any if i've missed out anything important here if there's some really good evidence that i've missed if there are better examples of Uh, cats that were undeniably loose in the countryside and then were caught afterwards i'm all for it i'd love to know all about it and i'm going to wrap things up with that so as always get in touch let me know what you think over on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are wide atlantic weird podcast folks thank you very much for listening and as always stay safe and thanks (laughs) i said it already didn't i say as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.